Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with Kavita Bedford. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books that you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. 2SER broadcasts from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is stolen land, and treaty was never made in Australia. Kavita Bedford is an Australian Indian author and freelance journalist. She's the 2020-21 Westwards Writer-in-Residence at the Writing and Society Research Centre at Western Sydney University, and her writing has appeared in Guernica, The Guardian, and Griffith Review. Kavita is joining us to discuss her debut novel, Friends and Dark Shapes. In Friends and Dark Shapes, four friends move into a share house in Redfern. Over the course of four seasons, the friends navigate communal living and try to get a handle on whether this is in fact their lives or just another stepping stone towards a place that everyone else seems to have reached. From toilet rolls and the dishwashing roster to navigating space in a city that is always shifting and seemingly forever out of reach, Friends in Dark Shapes explores love, longing and loss in Sydney. Join me as we discover Kavita Bedford's Friends in Dark Shapes. Hello, Kavita speaking. Hello, Kavita. It's Andrew Popel calling from 2SER. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for calling. Oh, thank you. Congratulations on the launch of Friends and Dark Shapes. If I if I saw correctly on social media, you had a big launch last night, yes? I did, and I'm... <laughs> that I love... Yeah, is, it's good. <laughs> that is perfect. It's like, how often do you get to see your first novel go out into the world? I think just once, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's so it's so fantastic. I've I've had such a journey with friends in dark places, and I mean, so much of the discussion I think is going to come in the, into the way you embody the city and and the way the characters mm. inhabit it, and that's that's been this really wonderful thing for me. Oh, that's so lovely to hear. But yeah, I mean, it's what. Yeah, it's so wonderful to hear that there's Friends in Dark Shapes is this magnificent piece of Sydney and I've like I've come to regard it as this little piece of the city as I've been reading. It involves a group of friends who move into a share house in Redfern and over the course of four seasons, these friends navigate communal living. They try to get a handle on whether this is in fact their lives or just another stepping stone towards a place that everyone else kind of maybe seems to have reached. So, I mean, Kavita, look, sharehousing, this whole moving from rental to rental, it feels like a rite of passage in your 20s, but it's also something that's becoming, you know, people do it for longer as Sydney gentrifies and becomes kind of almost unlivably expensive. Our friends and our communities, they sort of become like extended families, but as one of your characters, Katie, tells us, the truth about getting older is you just spend more time watching the same streets and missing people that used to be in them with you. Do you think it's possible to make peace with these expanding but ephemeral worlds that we seem to inhabit? Yeah, I think um, I was so interested in the share house kind of 
genre even that is in quite a lot of Australian literature, um, especially around the sort of 70s. And I was kind of looking at, you know, obviously like Helen Garner and a few other writers, but I'm so interested by how that, that share house mentality has shifted. And so exactly what you were saying, you know, it was kind of like ramshackled, precarious, but sort of exuberant rite of passage that, you know, this idea of living with everyone and kind of communal living. But as things have shifted and changed so much, we are now extending that form way beyond what probably so many people were hoping to be, the amount of time they were hoping to be in a share house. And, you know, I know people in their 30s, 40s, 50s and beyond who are still living actually or have happened now be in share houses. So I was wanting to use that kind of, that format or that, that model to actually explore some of the deeper issues about what is a home and how do we make a home in a city that is shifting and changing and gentrifying before our eyes. I want to digress from my thoughts about Friends and Dark Shapes immediately because as you were speaking there, it occurred to me that it's really about this these competing narratives in Australia for most of the 20th century and into the 21st century seems to have had this narrative of, you know, you you buy your quarter acre block in your big backyard, you own your home, you settle down. And now we have this narrative of, of shared living, of communal living that is almost by default becoming dominant for so many people. You also seemingly grimly juxtapose this with a, a scene later in the book where your narrator's father who um, who has cancer, is in a respite home and has a very different share house living. What do you think about the way those those narratives occupy us in our society and how we might fall into them or, or push against them? Yeah, look, I think issues around housing um, is such a massive issue because it brings in a lot of class issues as well. And there's so much of this novel that is trying to deal and grapple with very different forms of people who've lost um, and different forms of people who've lost homes. So a lot of them um, are migrants or people who have fled um, or a second generation Australians or, like you say, generator's father who then finds himself in a kind of respite care needing to be looked after. And that's all juxtaposed with these kind of 20-something-year-olds who are sort of leading this fun-filled life, but a very questioning one as well because they're seeing how precariously they are placed. And I really wanted to explore these different elements of inner city, how, how do we treat people around issues of housing, security, home, uh, where do we like to place people? And I guess this idea as well of like, how we choose who gets to stay and who has to leave. And so um, in the book, there's people of very different varying degrees moving through the city who have come from very different sorts of um, ideas of, of and landmarks of what is coming of age but also what is a home. And I think there's this really interesting thing. Um, I wanted to also look at this generation of um, there's almost this promise that was given of, you know, like you're saying, the great Australian dream and it's very much around home ownership. And there's this feeling by so many that they've also been cheated of that or somehow have lost what was supposed to be theirs. And it's it's somewhere between entitled, but somewhere between was this promise also something that is owed to them. Um so I kind of wanted to navigate these without being didactic and, and without sort of necessarily putting judgment upon any of the classes, but um yeah, with, with cities, there's just so much and so many different people living in different states of precariousness 
what I wanted to explore. I'm really interested in those comments you made about the the generational aspects, also the class aspects. I wondered as I read about how different readers would come to Friends in Dark Shapes. For me, there was there was so much of this bittersweet remembering because I, I left Sydney and the inner West more particularly about a year ago. And as your narrator moved through the city in the book, you took me back through streets that I, I still just love. And your narrator confronts this paradox of reminiscence as she moves through spaces marked by her memories, the memories of her father uh, and the ever-changing, I guess, always building streets. Like Sydney is is always shifting. I've heard um, in a video that you have up online or uh, supporting the book, you talk about the influence of coming-of-age novels set in the great cities of the world. Can you talk about those literary spaces that you'd like Friends in Dark Shapes to inhabit? Yeah, I think it was a really interesting... So much of what um, where this novel began from was I was actually reading... Um, so much literature, but also music and films, you know, so much of our art forms um, about great cities and coming-of-age stories set in great cities of the world. So there was this huge part of me that in, in so many ways felt like my own coming-of-age was actually marked much more by Dublin and London and New York and Paris and um, these kind of great writers from those spaces. And while there has been quite a lot of writing, of course, about Sydney and, and you know, from Sydney sides, I kind of hadn't, I, w- I was grappling a bit to see a coming of age story. You know, I guess I was thinking of looking for Alibrandi, um, but, you know, something that was sort of more recent that seemed to navigate some of the complexities of what coming of age is now. And so I decided, and I, it's kind of interesting because I don't think I ever initially had any interest whatsoever in writing about Sydney. And, um, when I sort of saw how there's this sort of idea that we still, you know, dating back from so many cultural sort of issues where we still sort of almost want to be international in order to be taken seriously. Um, I really wanted to place this coming of age in local streets and in familiar spaces and I wanted those kind of aha moments and, you know, my dream was to have people feel like, yes, that happened to me and on that street and in that moment and in that park and so much sort of Australian vernacular and the way that people also what we do, you know, how we have fun. Um, I kind of wanted to get those specificities, but we're dealing with very universal issues Um, because in so many ways this book is about loss, displacement, grief, disconnection, um, friendship, coming of age. Um, But it's also, you know, in so many ways I saw – where it's at Redfern, um, this is happening in so many Western democratic countries around the world, this process of gentrification and changing. And so much of this book was also written abroad, actually. And um, it was through conversations shaped with friends here, but also friends from other countries. And those points of universality, I was really interested in exploring but with local landmarks and streets felt very important to me. It's so interesting how being away from a place can bring so many elements of it and also so much of what's important into focus. The novel the novel's composed of vignettes that are set across the city. Did that structuring reflect something of the characters' experiences? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, there was two things going on there. So I, one was that uh, I was wanting to explore the emotion of grief, which is such a it's such a difficult thing because in so many ways it occupies a space where one feels quite disconnected from what is going on and it can be quite a liminal space and sort of feels in between and that you're not quite sure which land you're living in and it's filled with a lot of sort of subterranean or deeper sort of um, emotions and while that is the nature of grief, I also wanted it to be, you know, a novel that has some propulsion and moves forward in many ways. Um, and it can be hard to sort of just get that evocative sense, an emotional sense, um, and without the novel actually having a trajectory to it. Mm. So a big part of I was looking very much at form and structure, and I was reading a lot of work with very short, tight chapters and um, vignettes or short chapters, but that kind of episodic way. Um, so I was reading a lot of, at the time, um, Jenny Offal, Rachel Cuff, I was reading Brian Washington. I was reading Peshu Pole. I was reading a lot of writers who write about cities, um, Valeria Luiselli, who writes about Mexico, that were all using very tight vignette forms to actually move the, the thought and narration through. And that seemed, one, was something that, you know, sensibility um, I really am drawn to, but also it felt like the right kind of form for exploring these kind of subterranean emotions and deeper things and to keep things with a, um, I was very much looking at rhythm and, and pattern and it felt important to interject grief with joy and fun and laughter and conversation and moments of, um, you know, very much the share house community and, and the friends who kind of inject through the narrator's distance. And some of that even perhaps mundanity that gets drawn into sharp focus. I I cannot let our our moment together pass without asking about the incredible uh, sort of vignette of the share house wrangling over toilet paper, buying it in bulk and gifting it to friends. And I mean, how how has that particular chapter come back and revisited you in the last 12 months and, and this seeming <laughs> bizarre place that the humble role has, has taken in Australian society? Yeah, actually, it's so interesting because obviously this book was written uh, pre-pandemic time. Um, but I was editing it through last year. And it was really interesting to be writing a novel about disconnection in a city and where characters are trying to find small moments and ways of, of uh, reaching across and, and connecting. Um, and to suddenly have, you know, sort of various people were reading the book in its form and just to have this kind of global sense of that's exactly what's happening right now. And for this book to sort of, you know, to be narrate, uh, sorry, to be editing through so much of that process and that time, this particular book, um, you know, so much of it seemed almost prescient. Um, but I guess with novels and with so much of, you know, writing is you are trying to capture the mood of a time. Mm. Um, and these were issues that I think were already occurring, uh, you know, again, beneath the surface. Um, but they just kind of came to a much sharper, heightened light 
in the last year. Those scenes that we saw on our TV screens and, you know, sort of the headlines that that flew around the world as, as you know, the rolls flew off the, the store shelves, they, they sort of became this source of, of national shame for me. And then I read your chapter and I thought, here is some perspective and here is something of, I guess, the lighthearted Australianness that was so lacking in, in so many of those stories. So, I mean, look, that's... That's just a really strange aside on my part, but it was it was so wonderful to watch. <laughs> Thanks. And I think one of the things I was really interested in that you kind of touched on in um, the earlier question was I'm so fascinated by the poetry of every day. Mm. And there seems to be, you know, often it feels as if, and certainly in earlier times I felt like, you know, as if to write a novel or to do work, they always have to be about such... Um, such huge plot lines or that they have to have some huge kind of narrative construct. But I was so interested in the ways that we elevate moments in the everyday. We put things down and it's so much grace and humility and effort of getting through a day. And for so many different people from very different perspectives, I kind of wanted to explore how that um has its own poetry, and yeah, and has its humanity guiding it through as well. As you walk us down familiar streets, your narrator tries to come to terms with the expanse of Sydney. And it struck me as almost a kind of a parody of, of Clover Moore's old slogan, City of Villages. Your, narr- your narrator comments on how Greater Sydney's expanse ultimately leaves it fragmented, especially in that divide between East and West and that kind of coastal suburban phenomenon of, of food tourism. Do you feel like you were able to reconcile parts of Sydney as you wrote Friends in Dark Shapes? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I guess so much is a geographical issue. You know, it's a sprawling city and just through the essence of how it's kind of been can both I, architecturally. Can I ask you about that there, though? Because it's so strange in this post-COVID world that we were just referring to that now Sydney siders who can't travel abroad – are finding the, the the weekender capacity to drive out beyond the mountains, and and I feel like that almost challenges this idea that it was ever geographical. Um, there was there was always the distance, but there was also that lack of will. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a huge part of truth to that, and that's what I was about to say. I was going to say, you know, there's definitely a geographical element. Like it's hard, you know. Uh, peak hour traffic in Sydney to get from one end of the bridge to the north and to try and go visit someone in the west. I mean, that just seems kind of laughable to so many Sydney siders. But there also seems like an unwillingness. Mm. Um, and I think it does become, whether it's intentional or not, but it does tend to become quite enclave. And I talk to so many people who just haven't even been to southwest Sydney or haven't been to, you know, if they're from there, haven't been to aspects of the north or or parts of the um, inner west and south. And it, I find that such an intriguing and interesting, um, yeah, sort of phenomenon that happens here. And it was interesting because I think when I came back from overseas, I also kind of made this intention that or this idea that I would explore lots of Sydney. And it was through that and through conversations as well with different people and just realising how segregated we are in so many ways. 
Your narrator is working on a project documenting parts of Sydney. And at one point, she's confronted by an editor who wants her to rework an article on hijabi fashion and refocus it on the, the refugee angle. Do you feel like that relationship between parts of Sydney, they come about like this, these, these fragmented stories that are told through uh, a particular lens or perhaps even a lens of self-interest? Um, yeah, I, I don't know, again, if that's how much is to do with the geography of the city. Um, there's such a strong focus, and this isn't just the Sydney thing. This is global, global or Western Democratic, I should say, mm. country. Um, there's such a strong focus and desire to talk about identity politics. Yeah. Um, and, of course, it's a huge issue, and it's really important. But to always put everyone who's is sort of viewed as others into this quite limiting gaze mm. was something that I was interested in as well. Um, and so that scene that you refer to is kind of, a, you know, a moment where the story is meant to be about this sort of entrepreneurial young businesswoman who happens to come from Syria. But there is this lens from media perspective in this story and the editor who says, Rather than it be about that, can we make it about her trauma? Can we make it about her pain? And can we make it about the refugee angle in Syria? And please turn it onto my desk by tomorrow. Mm. Um, and I do think there is this kind of gaze that gets created, yeah. How hard is it then to to start to navigate those identities and, and work through the identity politics? Because it occurs to me that that even happens within the share house and um, – the conversations around the toilet paper, but also conversations around cleaning the house come down to some ideas around identity there. You know, one share house member um, has, has a, a personal assistant and seems to outsource every element of their life through an app, but has these really strong objections to getting a cleaner and the, the other members seem to they they have a a very uh, identity lens of of privilege that kind of gets put on that whole interaction identity politics really seem to they they invest and perhaps infest all of our um relationships at some point yeah and i mean i think we can't talk about that or identity politics without talking about class you know they're so so intersectional um so i guess so much of that scene as well was you know the one, a lot of the characters in the share house are um, sort of second generation because I was interested in um, the complexities that we're talking about here. Uh, you know, so for example, that uh, character Sammy, his parents are from Palestine. He works as a lawyer. He has so many of the privileges and middle class existence, but his parents went through a very hard time, and he now has yeah, a cleaner and he wants to get everything through Uber Eats and he's trying to grapple and they're all trying to grapple with what is it okay to to have and what is it okay to ask for and what, what is privilege, I guess, is what so much of the book is trying to, in a subtle way, um, I guess get readers to, I'm, I'm trying to invite readers to think about it rather than necessarily providing answers. Um, and I just wanted the, these characters to have conversations about these issues. Um, and so it's through sort of raising conversations about, because I think there are complexities that don't have clearly defined answers and they're ones that so many of us are grappling with and there is no clear right or wrong uh, when we're talking about things like you know, gentrification, 
when so many of us are also part of the problem and mm. the very thing that we denounce, um, we're all sort of playing a role. And I guess I was interested in how to look at the implications of us in these positions. Um, but without necessarily trying to shame or judge because that has been the very thing um, that creates such divisiveness in these conversations. So I just wanted them to be kind of explored through uh, characters and, and the conversations that they have at shared houses and through the streets of Sydney. And I guess the flip side of, of some of that conversation uh, we see throughout Friends in Dark Shapes, your narrator, your characters, they experience a multitude of small encounters with, with baristas, with Uber drivers, chance meetings on the street. Um, I used to have this ritual. It was particularly sacred on days like this when I would be recording for Final Draft. I'd go to my local, grab a coffee, and I'd reread or sometimes finish the book that I was on. And since COVID, I've been making my coffee at home, and so many of those chance encounters have disappeared for me. I wondered how you reflected on the importance of those social moments nowadays? Yeah, I, they're so huge. I mean, I it's interesting because in some ways um, I wrote much more of the chants, as you call them, the kind of stranger encounters. In some ways I was writing parts of those well before I was writing anything to do with the share house. Mm-hmm. Um, and the share house came in later as a kind of vessel to talk about other things I wanted to talk about. Um, and... I wanted to look at the importance and the, the kindness of strangers and how much we rely on it. But I was particularly interested in big cities where so many different people are feeling lost on so many different levels and disconnected on so many different levels. And I saw the narrator acting as a sort of sponge, if you will. And the way that people just, reveal and tell her intimacy um, that says so much as well about how lonely many people are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of wanted to explore, you know, what, what is that in us that sort of needs that need to reveal so much of ourselves when we perhaps don't have others to reveal ourselves to. Is there um, a, so oh, I, Sorry. Sorry. I was just wondering, okay. is, there a, is there a tension then between that loneliness and that need to reach out and connect and just the idea of community building and that we would naturally connect beyond perhaps a tight-knit group that we might consider it be, to be more natural to have those intimacies with? Yeah, I mean, I just the, definitely the sense of community feels really important and in big cities it's important to have those. Um, but it also feels, in, and you know, that's so much of our stronghold and um, gives us a base to go from. But it also feels, I guess, I was interested in what is the role of listening and empathy. Mm. Um, and so the narrator is often quite silent in the book um, and kind of often is more receiving a lot of other people's judgments or verdicts or stories or tales and Part of that was I wanted a kind of listening device to be just very subtly working um, because that seems like something where, yeah, we're not necessarily listening to people whose views are different to us. We don't necessarily talk to people who come from different socioeconomic or just sort of 
seem a little bit strange perhaps we perceive it, um, but it seems so important to be talking with a multitude of voices and thoughts and ages and races and demographics because it's what our world and what our society is comprised of. Um, but we do think to, again, have that sort of slight segregation. Um, but, yeah, I was just interested in exploring how, how that how that comes through in a city. There's a a particularly confronting scene for your narrator in the book where she's told that her silence is a choice. And I I wondered, as you were speaking there, if, if you were aware, I guess, that there was perhaps a larger irony in that because I, 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 I guess part of that silence is what allows the story, these, these small intimate moments, these stories that emerge to happen, it also really got me thinking about the role silence plays. I'm I'm a, a great believer in in silence because it does give those spaces for for stories to happen. Sorry, was there a question? <laughs> Sorry. No, there wasn't a question. There wasn't a question. <laughs> Sorry, I just it, that popped into my head as you were talking, and I I just thought that that really sure. is so very interesting. And I'm I'm resisting the urge to over identify your narrator with you. But it strikes me that that much of the experiences would have some founding in experiences that you have had, and um, and I mean, if you know, if snatches of conversation can then be reflected, there isn't there is an irony in that confrontation in the book because the, the the silence that the narrator chooses is what has also allowed her to take in these these stories, these snatches, these moments. Yeah, I mean, silence is something that there's not a lot of value for. Mm. Um, and like you're saying, it's so important. And there's quite a lot of scenes through the book where um, different people talk about different forms of silence. Mm. Um, so one where she goes to get acupuncture, I think, and, um, you know, the acupuncturist does his fastener and talks about the need for space and time because there's so much noise. And there's a lot of discussions about noise but while everyone's contributing to the noise. Mm. Um, and I guess, yeah, that was something I was I was definitely interested in myself and, and wanted to explore through the book. Um, in the area where she sort of gets chastised, I guess the only difference was where she's sort of not weighing into a debate. They're having a debate about, again, a sort of class issue, and she chooses to remain silent. And I think there is this really interesting moral positioning now occurring um, where everyone, you know, so much of what is occurring where people are screaming at each other from both ends of political and social spectrums, um, where silence, silence isn't necessarily valued because everyone's clamoring at each other with their opinions. Um, so often just seen as silent is kind of perceived as opting out or bystander. Um, and there's an interesting kind of, both are happening you know some of it is an opt-out but some of it also seems really important because is what we need more voices in the fray at the moment Mm, absolutely i think the need for not only the listening but for the spaces to do that listening and and for less of that cacophony of voices i think that's a very important point you've made there um we've we've touched on the themes of loss that come to, I guess, at times overwhelm your narrator, she, she's lost her father, or perhaps more correctly, he, he has died, but he's not lost because he inhabits so many of the streets 
and places that she traverses in the city. And in my reading, again, I, I returned to my recent move and the challenge of inhabiting new spaces with memories when you're in a place where you don't have that history. Um, how I, mean, I, I had this sort of, you know, very visual image of when you live in a space for a certain amount of time, you can almost walk around with ghosts of, of yourself and, and friends inhabiting different places. How do you go about inhabiting space and time in, in your familiar places? And what did you want to reflect of that in, in Friends and Dark Shapes? Well, I think you nailed it. Like talking about ghost things. I'm so interested in ideas of hauntings mm. um, and what we get haunted by. Um, and it's not necessarily this idea of paranormal, but um, by memories, you know, and how they chase us and how being in a city where there are a lot of memories if you've grown up or maybe even just spent time where where losses or heartbreak or occurrences that have also been hard, um, how often it's those places suddenly take on this very stifling quality, you know, and we, and we talk and it's sort of interesting now where so many people can't get out, but there's this constant need to like, okay, this has happened, it didn't go well, but that's okay because I'm getting out of here. I'm going to go abroad. I'm going to go to another country. I'm sort of talking middle class, obviously, here. Um, but that kind of, I'm going to escape the place because when I've had enough time away from the place, I'll be able to come back and, and I can sort through it. And I was really interested in how we inhabit spaces and how spaces inhabit us and how it's quite an embodied um, occurrence that occurs with place and how much we inscribe our emotions onto a place um, where we feel it's, it's, yeah, constrictions, but also, you know, when things are going great, it's this beautiful, sparkling, amazing kind of place and the sun is shining and the leaves are there and the jacaranda's out, but then when things are going bad. And I was very interested um, hearing talk, people talk about place through their own sort of, you know, why they need to go or why they need to stay. Um, and that was something I really wanted to explore and how much a city becomes us or we become the city and, and which is first. I have this strange, almost counterintuitive relationship to spaces in my memory. I mean, you have this, we have this, I guess, cliche that as children, every space seems enormous, but then when you revisit those spaces, they inevitably seem smaller because you have, you have physically grown you embody the space in a in a much larger way but for me often in memory spaces become so much smaller because I'm I'm now spending more time in them I fill them with more detail maybe there are laneways that I'd I'd never noticed before or thought to walk down so (laughs) the older I get spaces seem smaller in my memory and I I fill them out as I inhabit them, and that's that's something about going into a new space, which can start to f- start very small and then get larger and larger. I'm I, I, I'm a big person for walking. I love walking yeah, around yeah. every space that I I find myself in. Yeah, it's amazing. And the very first uh, draft of this book, um, speaking of first drafts, was um the and which sort of I ended up rewriting but was all based on walks and walks through the city. Oh. Um, and I was reading so much Flaneur writing and at the time I saw this is going to be a map of Sydney <laughs> um, and I saw it as something that the narrator would, you know, and I was spending so much time with maps as well. Mm. Um, but I, yeah, I think it's such an, and that whole kind of genre of Flaneur writing 
Um, and I was also reading a lot of, you know, like Rebecca Solnit and Olivia Lang, um, who talk so much about, you know, walking, what it is for a woman to walk through a space as well, mm. what it is to be a female learner. Um, but I think there are these really, and they go, you know, the pace goes so well with writing, with this rhythmic quality to it. Um, yeah, so that makes absolute sense to me <laughs> that you love walking. Such an incredible and such an incredible history of, of writers and walking. I'm, I, 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 I doubt there is any way, you know, any of us will ever get to see that first draft that involved walking, but it sounded, it sounds wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Maybe, maybe bits of it. I can, I can somehow save parts of it, but um, yeah, decisions had to be made. <laughs> I am speaking with Kavita Bedford. We are discussing her debut novel, Friends and Dark Shapes. It is it is a wonderful novel on so many levels. Uh, I'm going to prominently mention that it is a wonderful novel of Sydney because we are on 2SER, which is Sydney's community radio station. Kavita, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. And it felt like a beautiful verbal walk through Sydney with you. So much appreciated. That's it for this great conversation with Kavita Bedford. Kavita's debut novel, Friends in Dark Shapes, is out now from text. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunagurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. We are on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Just look for Final Draft 2SER and subscribe in your podcast app. Give us a rating. Send me a comment. It means there will be a new Great Conversation arriving in your uh, podcast inbox every week. I am Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. And until then, have a happy week of reading. Bye now.